0: When he was young, Monroe Anderson had a plan. It was the 1960s, and... I was going to be James Bow. He was going to be a novelist. Then his class got a visit from Les Brownlee, a pioneering black journalist who worked for the Chicago Daily News. Brownlee said now was the time for young black writers to get into journalism.
1: So I decide I'll see what this journalism thing has. I'll try it out for a year or so, and then I'll write the great American novel.
0: Then he covered the 1968 Democratic National Convention. He was tear-gassed alongside Catherine Graham. Another decade and a half, and he predicted Chicago's first black mayor. The ink was in his blood. This week on Interstates, Monroe Anderson on objectivity, racial politics in Chicago, and why he couldn't quit journalism. Coming up after this. It's Interstates, I'm Alex Chambers. After Donald Trump was elected president, journalism realized it had a dilemma on its hands about what it meant to be, quote unquote, objective. At the beginning of 2017, for example, Lewis Raven Wallace wrote a post on his personal blog saying objectivity is dead and I'm okay with it. He was working for NPR's Marketplace at the time. They asked him to take it down, saying it didn't comport with expectations around objectivity. He refused and he was fired. He's since produced a podcast and written a book called The View From Somewhere, Undoing the Myth of Journalistic Objectivity. He argues that, quote unquote, objective journalism usually benefits the people in power. And this dynamic has been at play long before President Trump. That question of what it means to have a position, to care about a particular group of people, say, and to have strong opinions, and to maintain your integrity as a journalist, that's part of what I was interested in when I invited Monroe Anderson to sit down for an interview. Monroe Anderson is a veteran journalist and columnist. He's worked at Newsweek, Ebony, the Chicago Tribune, and other papers. He hosted a TV show called Common Ground for eight years. And he was the press secretary for Chicago Mayor Eugene Sawyer. Before all that, he was an intern at Newsweek when he went to cover the 1968 Democratic National Convention. While he was there, he was among the journalists who were beaten by the Chicago police. He was a student here at Indiana University at the time, and I'm talking with him while he's in town to accept a Distinguished Alumni Award from the IU Media School. Monroe Anderson, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Great to have you.
1: Okay, now, with objectivity. Let's start there. Sure. That's your intro. Objectivity is a modern construct in journalism. When newspapers began before the Revolutionary War, whoever could afford to buy a printing press printed their own propaganda. And that continued all the way up to uh, the good old days of yellow journalism around the turn of this 19th century to the 20th century, uh, the 1800s. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Anyway, when when they had the, the penny rags at that time. And those were not objective because their audience was immigrants. And so wherever you were from, they were sort of in favor of you. And whatever you thought, they were sort of in favor of that. And who you disliked are the next ethnic group, an immigrant group that was coming in that you didn't like. They were against that. For for example, the Chinese were treated horribly during their era. Of serious immigration, the the Irish obviously we know no 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 dogs are Irish allowed that sort of thing. So so the this idea of um, objective journalism is a nice idea as such, but it had a very brief life because now we have almost none of that.
0: What is your understanding of the the rise of that idea?
1: Well. From my professional perspective, it was a pretense when it it was there. You know, for example, when I was at the Chicago Tribune and Harold Washington was running for mayor, the Tribune was not interested in black journalists covering it because they thought we would be too slanted too favorable to, to Harold. And since almost none of the editors there wanted Washington to win, they didn't want any of that. Uh, had it been a candidate that they really wanted, then it wouldn't have bothered them in the least bit.
0: Right, it wasn't a problem for white journalists to be covering white candidates.
1: Exactly. <laughs> or Jewish, our Jewish yeah, because I, I pitched them at one point to um, send me to Africa, to cover Africa. and. Um, they weren't interested in Africa at the time, so they gave me some other excuse. But they would do the favor. The you might be too sympathetic right. to to the beat or something. But it didn't. It wasn't a problem for a Jewish reporter, journalist, to cover Israel. You know. So it's just it's 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 been a pretense, but I don't think it's really existed. Right. And so, you know, and so my, my, what I taught, I've taught journalism. And what I would teach my students is that being objective is impossible because you come with biases just as a human being. But what you should strive to be is fair. So if you would cover one person one way, then you should cover the other person the same way. And that works out.
0: Though I think even that, I think one of the things we've seen, you know, in the recent past at least, is this idea that covering sort of two sides of an argument yeah. is always the thing to do, even if, say, the preponderance of agreement is— Oh, yeah, no, is... Trump,
1: Trump blew that <laughs> up. <you> know, <laughs> right, <laughs> Because right. I, I would watch journalists try to do this—well, he said this, you know. In the meantime, it would be, well— uh, this guy said the sun rises in the east, and Trump says the sun rises in the west. You know, just just as strongly, and and they were reporting it like, okay, that was it. They done their job, whereas they should have been saying, liar, liar, right. pass on fire.
0: So, when you were um, when you were sort of coming up in your career. For example, when you were here at IU, okay. and you were involved in a, a black nationalist group yeah. Yeah. who, you know, had this, did this protest, yes. and you had, you had mixed allegiances, I think, right? Very, that was a challenge very, for you. Very, very. Tell this, me about that. This
1: was, my, this, this was my problem. Okay, after I completed my internship at Newsweek in Chicago, I have the dubious distinction of being one of the first journalists beaten by the Chicago police. And that made me a star, <laughs> and so they flew me to New York and uh, New New week did, and they- I was on a, a, a radio show. I'm 21 years old at the time. I was on a radio show, and I was fr- I I spoke to an audience of people in New York. I'm not sure, it's, you know. They said, "Go up there and tell them about your experience in two minutes or less." You know. <laughs> anyway, so I- I'd done that, and I had become as a result of that. A uh, big man on campus from the hmm. journalist point of view, so the Indiana Daily student offered me a job part times uh, twenty hours a week, but it was it was a very nice job, but it was some more experience. And so I did the job, but I was also uh, hanging out with the black students or back in those days the black militants because as as if you were going to be a, a student, uh, who's interested in politics and race relations, that's where you had to go with it. And that was fine with me. So anyway, I'm in a series of meetings with these people. After the tuition, they announced that they were going to raise the tuition. And you know, just for th- those of, who are here now who may listen to this, in 1965, tuition at Indiana University was $15 a credit hour. So if you took 11, uh, how many hours? Anyway, it would be about 165 What it, it ended right. up being or something oh, like that. Amazing. And so they were, they were raising it for yeah. some strange reason. And, so, <laughs> and the black students in these meetings they were having looked at it as a plot to reduce the black population in Bloomington. That was their theory, is that they're trying to get us off the campus, so they're raising the... the, What did you think of that? I thought it was nuts. I thought it was nuts. You know, it's like... I mean, they were raising it just for the black students, and it didn't raise... I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't like it went from $15 an hour to $50 an hour or something like that. So I can't remember the, the number. But... And in the meetings, I sort of voice that, but not strongly because there were leaders and I was just one of the crowd. So anyway, they plan the they, they, they plan a demonstration, have their uh, list of ten, 10 non negotiable demands, uh, one of which was to rescind the tuition increase. And at that time, I'm working for the News Bureau. And so I, I go with the black students, and you have all the you have the, the uh, all the top uh, leaders of it, the, the university IU, the, the the chancellor I think that was the title, and anyway if the people who actually run the, <laughs> the, the, president the university president yeah. yeah exactly right. they're all in this meeting, mm-hmm. and we walk in. And the first person I notice is John Newman, who was my boss. <laughs> and I go, oh, my God. And so I make a pivot, and I start going the opposite way of the students. And everybody is looking at me very strangely, like, where are you going? <laughs> and so then I go, hmm, how do I get out of this? And it so happens that I have my uh, reporter's note book in one pocket so i walked back in boldly walk over to john then down on one knee and pat him on the back and say don't worry john i'm covering this (laughs) and i did you know i i i was there with the black students but i was interviewing everybody and so it, it worked out but it it was quite frightening for concerning for me initially
0: did that shape how you thought about journalism
1: yeah it did it did yeah well let's go back to my actual internship okay before i did the internship i wasn't really interested i i had no ink in the blood when i was in 7th grade at roosevelt high school in gary my English teacher pulls me aside and says to me, after I'd done a paper, he says, "Um, you are a writer, you're really talented, you are a writer. I had teachers tell me that I was smart or this or that, but no one had assigned a specific talent to me. So from that point on, I quit studying my math and thought of myself as a writer, I became editor of the junior high, eighth grade page in the high school newspaper. I went on to be the editor of the newspaper. But I thought of myself as a writer, and so I was going to be James Baldwin. And um, then we got a visit from a black journalist from Chicago. He worked for the Chicago, his name is Les Brownlee. He worked for the uh, Chicago Daily News. And he came over and talked to our class, journalism class. And he said, um, now was the best time for us to go into journalism because things were changing. So I go home and tell my mother that I'm going to be a journalist. And she looks at me and says, there are no Negro journalists. Teach school. Be a school teacher. I had, had just told us that the field was open, and and it also tells you how long ago that we we were Negroes in 1964. Right. <laughs> but it, anyway, so I decide well, I'll, I'll see what this journalism thing has, and I'll still become. I'll try it out for a year or so, and then I'll write the great American novel and f- fulfill my dreams. And so that was my thinking. Even though as I came down here, uh, Miss Kemp was my counselor. The, it was a long time ago, but she was uh, well-known at that time in the department. And she tells in, me... In journalism, right? In the journalism department, department. here. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, she said three things to me I remember. First of all, I sit down to talk with her, and she, she asked me if I have a pen or pencil. And I say no. And she says, no good journalist ever travels without a pen or a pencil. And then she says, and uh, Monroe Anderson, that's going to make a great byline. (laughs) (laughs) And then she says to me, do you realize if you graduate with a degree in journalism from Indiana University, you'll be able to write your own meal ticket? At 18, the idea of writing my own meal ticket was intriguing. (laughs) And so I, I took that into consideration. Although I still wanted to be the, the novelist, when I covered the Democratic National Convention, besides being beaten on the first night by the cops, and we after we were beaten and we were pulled off this, we was part of the street um, team. We put in the office John Colhane, who was the real uh, journalist correspondent. And me, we were pulled off because they thought we had done something to provoke the police. And that was on a Sunday. Uh, Monday, we were pulled off. Uh, The cops were beating the living daylights out of everybody. It was a police riot. And so by Tuesday, they realized it wasn't us, it was them. So we were back on the street. In the covering, it was just very exciting. We were chasing, police chasing demonstrators. We needed to make a phone call, and we went into Sarge, the the Kennedy relative. um, Sergeant Schreiber? Sergeant Schreiber. Exactly, right. We went into his hotel room and made a a call from there. And um, during the process of this, I met all these famous people Catherine Graham and I were tear gassed together. We sat there, you know, and it occurred to me that as a journalist, hey, you got to you got to meet all these famous people. And B, you watch history as it unfolded. And so the ink was in my blood from it. <laughs> you know, I, I still wanted to write a novel, but uh, journalism was just far too exciting. In fact, When I was in New York and and, um, spoke before this audience, afterwards, I was approached by this guy who told me that he was a Yale Law School alumni and that he wanted to sponsor me and get me into Yale Law School. And I I didn't give it a second thought. I wanted to be a journalist, you know. Although now when I look back on it, uh, I could have been Clarence Thomas. (laughs) (laughs) Except our politics are a wee bit different. But, But anyway, so... I'm, I'm, you know.
0: Well, so how I was I was interested in how like that other moment too here yeah. at the protest. Yes. also sort of okay. shaped.
1: Okay, yeah, right, exactly. So that's sh- that. Yeah, that shaped me because I realized there was two sides to every story. Literally, I mean, I I've witnessed it because because I was working for the IU News Bureau after. The protests were over, and the president had a heart attack or something. He had a medical condition where they took him out on a stretcher. So it was international news. Um, my job, since I was covering it for, for, for John, my job was to write a press release talking about the protest and what happened and what have you. A press release for me- media, you know, the News Bureau, what PR departments do, that sort of thing. Oh, the other thing, which I, I'm leaving out, sorry about that, is I was also campus correspondent for Newsweek. So I had to write a report to Newsweek for them to publish about it. Right, So a journalistic uh, account. A journalistic account. So I had to do both. <laughs> and uh, um, And I did it. But working for the IU News Bureau convinced me that I didn't want to do PR, that I wanted to do real journalism. Why? Why? Because I knew what had happened as as a protesting student, but my job at the News Bureau was to put a pretty face on it for the university where things looked good and sounded good. Right. Okay. And, and, I was, and I was a student, so it's not like I was good at any of this. <laughs> <laughs> I could do a much better job today than I did back then. Sure. Right, right. <laughs>
0: okay. I didn't fully understand that the news bureau here was the PR It was the PR. Yeah, yes. It of was a the PR, university. Sorry. Yes, sure. exactly. exactly. Which we still have.
1: Okay, it probably has another name. I can't
0: remember exactly what it's called now.
1: Yeah, right. You know, it was a PR wing, and they they call themselves the News Bureau.
0: It's time for a short break. When we come back, Monroe Anderson talks about being a young black journalist in the late 60s. It wasn't hard to get a job. It was hard to get assignments with any weight to them. That's on Interstates right after this. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're talking today with Monroe Anderson. In 1968, he was a student at IU and an intern at Newsweek. That summer, he covered the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, and he was among the journalists beaten by the Chicago police. I asked him how he ended up on that assignment in the first place.
1: This is what happened. I've, as a student, Worked as, as everybody did back then, and I assume they still do. You had to write for the Indiana Daily Student as part of your your classes and what have you. As a black student, I couldn't cover S- City Hall. <laughs> that just was not going to work. <laughs> back back in '68, the uh, Ku Klux Klan burned a cross on a black student's lawn. Here, these were different times from yeah. now. Okay, Uh, And in fact, um, years later, I would become the first black reporter from a major white newspaper in Chicago to to cover City Hall. And this was in 83 Mm -hmm. with Harold Washington. So in the 60s, in a small town, Bloomington, where Where? there were no blacks in power whatsoever, I doubt if anyone would have talked to me even. I right. don't know. But anyway, the white students got that, <laughs> got that job anyway. So what I I cut I carved out a um, area that no one else was doing, and that's, I was uh, doing movie reviews, and I was doing feature stories. For example, I, interv- I interviewed the um, Fifth Dimension when they came through. I interviewed Lou Rawls. That sort of thing, so that was what I was doing uh because there was no competition for <laughs> nobody care <laughs> serious journalists and, weren't, weren't interested exactly they weren't interested in it and um later i I would become friends with um ebert and <laughs> and Cisco yeah. in fact, Cisco and I worked together mm-hmm. and um I wish I'd been able to do their job because <laughs> they were a whole lot richer than any other journalist in Chicago. But, but, so that
0: really changed, I guess. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> that changed, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so I'm in the newsroom, Right. and I'm working on a review for something. It may have been for um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Anyway, I'm writing the review, and my photography teacher, Will Counts, comes through. And there, there was no such thing as Googling somebody or anything like that back then. So I didn't realize that Will Counts was a very distinguished photographer. He had covered the civil rights movement and had some some shot that that was distributed widely, and so he had a very good reputation. Anyway, he's coming through. He sees me, and he comes over to me, and he says that Newsweek is expecting a long, hot summer in Chicago. That meant riots. And that they were looking for uh, a black journalist and that I should apply as an intern. That one, one of his students, former students, Marv Kupfer, who was at the Bureau at the time. And so I sit down and I write up uh, a letter and I send it to him. And very quickly, after that, I hear from them, I get a phone call. And they say they would like to interview me. When could I come in? And I said, well, I'll be home for spring break. You know, I live in Gary. You know, Chicago's not that far away, so I can do it then. And they said, fine. My interview is the day before my 21st birthday and the day after Dr. King has been assassinated and the city is in flames, the west side. Chicago is in flames. It was the easiest job interview I've had in my life. <laughs> so that's how, that's how I got there. And, and, and the thing was, at that time, what the transition that was going on was that um, because of the riots, newspapers and magazines... TV stations also, decided they needed at least one black because white journalists were becoming targets in those riots. And so if you had someone who blended in, then that would be a good thing. And so there was this rush for blacks in media that had not existed before. Uh, For example, at the Tribune, the first reporter they hired was a Chicago policeman who became a journalist, Joseph Boyce. And Clarence Page was the second one they hired there. Dur- during my internship, I was assigned to do a story. Newsweek was, did a story. Uh, headline was, How the White Press Attempts to Reach the Black Community. And there were four newspapers in Chicago at that time. The Tribune, the Sun-Times, the Daily News, and the Chicago American. The Tribune owned two of them, Sun-Times owned, Sun-Times and and the um, Daily News. They owned that. I interviewed all four editors. Mm -hmm. All four of them offered me a job. (laughs) <laughs> right after the interview, <laughs> and, and I said no. I I really do need to go back to Indiana University and, and finish my degree, <laughs> uh, which I did. But huh. those were different days at, yeah. at that time. One of the stories that I covered was was uh, about Christmas and students' attitude toward Christmas, and. The people I hung out with were not your typical IU student. They were musicians and and theater people and overall radicals. Right. And so I'm interviewing all these folks and asking about Christmas, and they're saying, oh, Christmas is too commercial, you know, that sort of thing. You know, what Radical said back then. Right. So I write, right, exactly. <laughs> so I write the story, and my editor says, who are these people you are quoting? <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, because they were obviously expecting one of these warm and fuzzy, <laughs> oh, Christmas is so wonderful, et cetera. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Did you continue? I mean, you've interviewed, you know, tons and tons of people. Yeah. Right. Did you feel like you continued to interview people with these different kinds of viewpoints, maybe more radical Viewpoints yeah. uh, in your career?
1: Yeah, early on in particular, yes. Mm-hmm. For example, let's go a little ahead, ahead Sure. Now. My first job was with the National Observer out of D.C. It was owned by Dow Jones. And I was the first black they ever hired. And, and when I say the first black, I mean no janitors, no secretaries, no nothing <laughs> but me. Wow and they had done that because uh, the managing editor of the newspaper at that time retired and before he retired there would be some qualified blacks who would apply and he would say did you notice that this is a negro and he put put it in file 13. and so they they swore that the first qualified black who apply, they're going to give a job to. And I was just, it was just a yeah, serendipity.
0: So you are working for them, and you uh, continue at that point to interview, maybe focus more on oh, well, particular... For,
1: yeah, no, for example, I interviewed Iceberg Slim. I did a piece on him. Iceberg Slim was this pimp who became a pulp fiction writer, and his books sold like hotcakes. And in fact, all of the—not all, but several of the um, rap people with ice in their name—it was after Iceberg Slim. Oh, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, because he moved to California. But you know, you have Ice Cube, right. You you have um, Ice T. Ice T. Yeah, one. right, yep. exactly. But all these guys had this worship. Or iceberg slim. He had moved to L.A. and and his life story was incredible. And he was a gr- he was really an interesting writer. I mean, he he basically invented street literature. But I, I interviewed Ossie Davis. I went to New York to interview him, and that was a uh, a moment for learning, in that I interviewed him I had a tape recorder, and I interviewed him. You know. And then he talks to me for an hour. I turn off the tape recorder, and there's nothing there. (laughs) There's nothing. And I'm not taking notes because I'm taping it. Right. And I just panicked. And he said, it's okay. And he gave me another interview. You know, he let me have another hour to interview it. Right, I know, I know, I know. But I interviewed Melvin Van Peebles, right after Sweet Back's badass song. He just died a couple of weeks, two or three weeks ago. But his his movie is in fact the blueprint for black exploitation.
0: So did you feel like were you interviewing these sort of really interesting cultural figures because you were still because you were still connected to wanting to be a novelist or was it about carving out this niche? No, it still? was, it was that or was, because you was, just was, couldn't, as a black reporter, you couldn't do, you know, quote-unquote, hard news.
1: Yeah, no, I did some hard news, but not a lot because I had never really done it. And it was a problem for me in that, okay, I, first of all, um, um, Amiri Baraka was my my hero. That's who I was emulating, <laughs> my writing You know, <laughs> It was like that. Now, as it turns out, because I did not have a hard news background and because I was trying to write newspaper stories like a uh, a Miri Baraka yeah. poem, <laughs> it didn't work. And so after two years, they suggested that I really did know, need to go work for a daily newspaper where I okay. get that experience. I was so crushed and heartbroken that I decided... and, and, and during that two years, I was still the only black there. I mean, still no janitors, no secretaries, me. So I applied to Ebony. And so I go to Ebony, and I worked there for a couple of years. The best experience out of Ebony is that um, it was so mightily uh, staffed that you that you had to do everything. You, mm-hmm. you know, you had to write fashion you had to edit stories that uh, that freelancers wrote. You you had to write your own uh, captions for the photographs. When I went out on assignment, I had to make sure that the photographer got the photographs that we need for the story. I mean, I got this very broad experience in in that sense. I met Billy D. Williams back then. I went on tour. Uh, with Curtis Mayfield right after Superfly had come out. I toured with him. Um, It was a great experience in that sense. But Mr. Johnson, and you had to call him Mr. Johnson, John Johnson, was, he ran a plantation. You know, his work began at 9 o'clock. If you got there at 9.01, you were late. And that's even if you had been there to 7 o'clock the night before working on a piece, it didn't matter. The lunch periods were dictated. The coffee periods were dictated. You had coffee from 9.45 to 10 o'clock or something like that up in the cafeteria, which was very nice. The building was incredible. And then you go back to work. Um, Lunch was for 45 minutes in the cafeteria. Now, you could go out and and, um, not eat at the cafeteria. But the thing is, Lunch was a dollar a day, and it was just this, this incredible soul food these cooks <laughs> <And> so <laughs> you know, and so it was a no brainer plus you got to fraternize with your your the other people there, so you ate there and you ate there where they told you for how long they told you and being at the observer, I had total freedom if it was like. If if I wanted to work from home after I'd done the reporting, I could I could stay home and write the story from there. It just they just were very hang loose about that, and so to go to that very disciplined, confining um, situation, I couldn't take it much longer. So I applied to the Tribune. I was accepted, and I went told Herb Nipson, who was the editor of Ebony. That I was gonna go work for the tribute. and he says to me, "That racist rack! You'll be back here within a year." <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but what and what was that? But that wasn't your experience there.
1: <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> to get there, okay, part of my negotiation because I knew other black reporters, and there weren't many. There were right. seven or eight. Yeah. Uh, but I, I knew some of them. And what they told me was, don't let them put you on um, the metro staff. That that wasn't the name of it, but again, it was almost 50 years ago. Sure. So, uh, <laughs> like the city beat? Yeah, okay. yeah. Why? Because that's where they kept all the black reporters. They were you would get on there. You wouldn't get any good stories. You would get the stuff that they didn't care about. And so part of my negotiations was I would not be on the metro. I'd be in the general assignment pool. And you know so could, because there were some black journalists, they would they would bring most unless you came from another newspaper, they would bring most rep- journalists most of the journalists in, but the white reporters. Would spend three months there, maybe. And Then they get a beat or, or something else, and they'd be out of there. You had black reporters who had been there for three years, and they didn't. They, you were writing stories that they didn't care about. Yeah. And so it just was not. You didn't. There was no way to advance your career. Right. And you knew that going in. Yes, I knew that going in. So that was part of my negotiation. And because I had worked for Ebony and the National Observer. Although I'd not covered any hard news, but I I covered stuff, and and I had clips, yeah, you know? right. So, so I, I and when I got there, I got a lot of um, obits <laughs> to write, <laughs> <laughs> but and, but sometimes you know I, I get a, a decent story. And the other thing was the the fortuitous thing that happened to me because you had to work weekends starting out. You didn't get weekends off. I would cover Push, Operation Push, every Saturday morning. And I did that for years. Can
0: you uh, describe Operation Push for maybe our younger listeners? Okay.
1: Operation Push was um, Jesse Jackson is a, a minister, a reverend. And he would have this Saturday morning meeting at Push headquarters, and he'd have he, he would take on whatever crisis of the day <laughs> that Jesse found, no matter where it was. He'd talk about it, you know. And, and the thing was, because I kept going, I uh-huh. went there every week. I I learned how it operated. Push operated. Jesse would do basically the same speech. So it got to a point where I could quote Jesse. I didn't even have to take notes for the most part anymore. I could quote him verbatim because I'd heard the same lines, I am somebody, et cetera, et cetera. But it would change. It would be a evolution in that 10% of whatever he spoke about would be new. The other 90% he had talked about. Yeah. You know, And it would move along like that, So, which was interesting.
0: It's time for a short break. When we come back, Monroe Anderson talks about racial politics in Chicago and how he predicted the city's first black mayor, Harold Washington. You're listening to Interstates. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're talking today with veteran journalist Monroe Anderson. In the early 1980s, he was working at the Chicago Tribune. As he watched the race to be the next mayor of Chicago, he realized there was a good chance that mayor could be black. None of his colleagues believed him until Harold Washington got the Democratic nomination and Monroe got some vindication.
1: The election was shaping up with Richard Daly and Jane Byrne and they were going to challenge each other. And I said, I don't know if you know of Bill Curtis. He used to be an anchor uh, in Chicago. And anyway, Bill would have this party, pre-Christmas party every year. So I, was, I went to the party, and all the political reporters were sitting at a table, and they were having this debate on who was going to win, which, which would be Richard Daley or Jane Byrne. And I had been covering the black community. And I knew that on the west side and the south side, meetings were going on where they wanted to run a black candidate because the black community put Jane Byrne in office and then she, she stabbed them in the back and went with what she had called the evil cabal, the, the white power structure. And so they were just, like, fuming. And so they were talking about running a black candidate. And so these guys are going back and forth, Jane Byrne, Richie, and you know. And I said, "What if a black person Canada, ran for mayor?" And the conversation stopped. And it was as if I said, "Well, what if we were invaded by Martians tomorrow?" <laughs> 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 and then they you looked at me too. and they shook their heads and they went on. <laughs> uh-huh. They were they, they went on with their conversation. So, I wrote an off-page piece predicting that the next mayor of Chicago would be black. And I, in my theory, the way I analyzed it was, uh, you have a popular uh, uh, candidate in Richie Daly. You have a popular mayor in Jane Byrne, and, and both were equally popular in the white community which was 60% of, of the city. And then you have, if you had a black candidate, he could win. And the two I named in my piece were um, Harold Washington and Roland Burris. And, you know, and I said, if one or the other. I wrote the piece, and um, it, 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 it sat back in the editorial department for weeks, because it was nothing urgent and nothing of importance. And then, th- again, through my contacts, I found out that Harold Washington was going to announce his candidacy. And that was a big deal. So I wrote the story on a Friday, and because it was too late in, in terms of, um, of the, the whole deadline to get it in the Sunday paper, it ran on a Monday banner, Washington in mayor's race. And I, I go back because, because my piece was speculative, the, the opinion piece. I go back to uh, Jack Fuller. I say, Jack, you have to run my piece now because if you don't run it now, it's not going to be worth anything. So on that Monday, my Chicago op-ed column, Chicago could have a black mayor and my f- banner story, Washington's in the, in the race which makes me an instant <laughs> expert <laughs> on Harold Washington and the race. And, you know, literally, I'm, I'm, people are calling me, radio stations are calling me. I'm on, on the radio. Um, I'm on TV, on, on, on the PBS station. And I go off vacation thinking, okay, when I get back, everything will be great. I come back, and I'm not assigned to cover the election. There are nine white reporters, yes. assigned. Wow. men, all men, and I go in and I confront the managing editor about that, and he says to me, "Well, um, we don't make assignments according to race, you know." Because I said I know the the, the, the city better, the black part of Chicago better than any reporter on, on its this face, on, on on the beat, and the lead reporter on the coverage was this guy named David Axelrod, who I had known as an intern. I remember when he came in as an intern. And so anyway, after my prediction comes true, I'm assigned to cover the general election. I get to do that because I was right on everything. I cover it and it was very fiery. the The day before, on a mon- the Monday before the Tuesday election, I'm on the D- day show, interviewed by Jane Pauley, and she wants to know, well, what if Harold Washington doesn't win tomorrow? Will there be rioting in the streets? And I knew enough about TV where. If one way, if you, you want to think about something, what you do is pretend like you didn't hear the question. It didn't come through right. And so I I I I I adjusted my earpiece, and, and I, um, I didn't get that because you repeated, which gave me a little time to think about what answer. And so she, she repeats the question, and I say, well, I would hope that there was no violence although emotions are running high. Basically, I, this, is, I, this is not an exact quote. because, sure. I, But anyway, I, I didn't denounce it. I didn't say, well, there should be any invite. I, I, I told the truth. And the Tribune switchboard lit up from coast to coast. But people who had seen the interview and were upset with me. And there were some people around the Tribune that were suggesting that I be fired. For doing that,
0: because it because they, it sounded like you were to them that you were encouraging. I don't know. You I didn't, don't know.
1: They did. I didn't give the right answer. Yeah. You know. I mean, I was supposed to. I, you know, I this much I do know that I I was supposed to have just said, well, no violence will be happening, yet. and that would you know that sort of thing, because Harold, when he won the primary, Chicago was so overwhelmingly Democratic, that whoever won that mm-hmm. race, it was just a given that they would win. But all the white Democrats in Chicago, when Harold won, became Republicans. I mean, overnight. I mean, literally the next day. They they interviewed this one guy who said um, he wasn't voting for, for that guy. He, he's going to vote for that Jewish guy, Epstein. Now, the, the, the candidate's name was Epton, <laughs> and and Epton's catchphrase, political phrase, was "before it's too late." And wow. so and and so Chicago's race was like on cover time and Newsweek. I mean, it was the mayoral race, and I you know and I covered it. And, then, and you covered the not
0: the primary but the general. The general. Okay.
1: But right. I because, well, because the other problem was I was everywhere but in my newspaper talking about. I was being interviewed for radio programs, but I was not in my my own newspaper.
0: And the Jane Polly interview was on the eve of the general election? Yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. Wow.
0: Well, so then I was interested to hear about... What sort of like looking back at all these different experiences, what are you sort of most glad to have been able to do? Okay,
1: I'm a columnist. That's what I am. I mean, that's what I was doing here as a student. It wasn't a column, but it was was opinion. And um, I wrote an op-ed page column for the Tribune for a year and a half before I went to Newsweek. I wrote a a, a column for the Sun-Times, 12 years ago or so for a year and a half. I wrote a column for the Chicago Defender five or six years ago for a year and a half. And I've done, I've written for um, HuffPost, HuffPo, The Root, opinion pieces. Um, uh, there's a new website called The Tribe, which is for black millennials in Chicago. I've written a few pieces for them. I enjoy writing opinions when i i did my tv show for 8 years and that was fun but the the difference between tv and print is that people would come up to me and say i really like your show and i said well which one did you like <laughs> they just liked it yeah. whereas when i wrote things people had an opinion and knew exactly what they liked about Right. It.
0: They remembered the, specific if you remember the specifics. They remembered the specifics. The specifics, yeah. Yeah, <laughs>
1: right. Exactly. So that was, although I did four investigations and was nominated for Pulitzer four times, but uh, for years I didn't mention it at all because it was, as far as I was concerned, it was like being nominated for an Oscar and not winning in China. You know, <laughs> so who <laughs> cares? But then when they started promoting actors, as Oscar-nominated this, I said, oh, maybe there's something to that after all. Yeah, really. Right, exactly, (laughs) right. You got it. (laughs)
0: Uh, That's great. Well, like I said, there's lots more I would love to ask, uh, but it's been such a pleasure talking. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: All right, now you're a good interviewer. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to Interstates. Do you have a story we need to hear? Have you recorded some really good sound? We want to hear them. Let us know. Go to wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick minute of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Ayoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Michael Pascash, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Monroe Anderson. Our theme music is by Amy O. Oh. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time to take a slow breath and listen to a place. You've been listening to Boots in Snow, Griffey Lake, Bloomington, Indiana. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.